covering uh, this Russian invasion of Ukraine. What are the implications, for example, with the situation in Taiwan? The information space so to underline that, in their view, the United States is losing its Fox ability News. to influence global operations. And this might be a warning as to what the future would look like. Again, an information operation on the Chinese part of the, of the Chinese government, President Xi there. Your insight, sir. Yeah, well, that's absolutely accurate, Emily. I mean, remember what brought these two countries and these two leaders together is their common understanding and, and mutual objectives that change the international order as we knew it, that is largely driven by the influence of the United is States common and Western democracies. That runs against their own national interests and strategic goals. And that is why they are together here. And certainly Putin exercising this degree of military force to seize an independent a sovereign state as he is doing is going to fit into the narrative very conveniently for President Xi that this is an indication that the United States indeed is a decline in power, that it's lost its grip on the international order that it used to have. Now, he is make, he's going out of his way not to endorse and not to condemn right now, but he's cheering from the sidelines there uh, because he, he recognizes that if this turns out to be significance in terms of geopolitical imprint on Europe, and I believe it will be, he's going to use that going forward. Nothing certainly is going to occur with Taiwan this year, given a National Party Congress and his enshrinement. But then I believe the next couple of years are, are pretty, pretty dangerous years in terms of China's uh, aggressiveness in the region. General, in terms of the American impact, much depends on how we respond to things, right? Putin has come out and said if, if we sanction the SWIFT banking system for the international trade, Russia might consider that an act of war. So this is very delicate to manage on the part of our decision makers. And as we head into the next hour where we expect President Biden to give remarks and speak, can you give us your insight into these difficult, delicate decisions that our administration is balancing right now and what our reaction uh, might spur in terms of consequences there by Putin, sir? Well, we're at a stage here where the consequences, no, we can't deter him, but we can punish him and, and exact retribution for him and hold him internationally accountable for such a serious violation of international norms in terms of seizing an independent country. So one of my favorite sayings on this show is the strong take what they want and the weak endure what they must. And I've been saying that for years. That's essentially how the world works. Now, people respond to that by saying, well, Luke, the strong don't always take what they want. And that's true. The strong don't always take what they want. But for a basic understanding of how the world works, right, that's a pretty good understanding. That's a pretty good understanding for your own life and for your community's life. So if you're an ethnic group, if you're Jewish, if you're Irish, if you're Polish, you want your ethnic group to be as strong as possible. You want to make the repercussions for damaging your group as big as possible. Right? People usually think once, twice, three times before criticizing Jews, because Jews in America are particularly well-organized and they fight back hard. And other minority communities, such as uh, gays, have followed in, in those footsteps. So individuals need to make themselves as strong as possible. And and if, if you have if you have power and, and strength, don't give it away. Don't dissipate it. Don't don't allow other people to 
invade your, your sacred spaces. We, we have such a tremendous effect on how other people treat us. And if we let people get away with bad behavior, we're just encouraging them to do more and more and more of it. So I, I've met a lot of people who love to push, push me, who love to you know, try to get away with you know, insolent, uh, disrespectful behavior. And the, the older I've gotten, the better I've been able to push back and say, no, no further, no, stop that. But if you don't stop back, you don't push back. If you don't stand your ground, so to speak, people will just roll all over you. Now, I bet Ukraine wishes it had its nuclear weapons. In 1994, you were very vocal about Ukraine surrendering its nuclear arsenal to Russia. Um, and I just wanted to know, in your opinion, is the annexation of Crimea a vindication of your opposition to Ukraine <laughs> surrendering its nuclear weapons? Yeah. Uh, I wrote a piece, for those of you who don't know, uh, in 1993, arguing that Ukraine should not give up its nuclear weapons because one day the Russians would come knocking and they would have good use uh, for their nuclear weapons. So the gentleman's question is, given that the Russians uh, conquered or annexed Crimea uh, in 2014, uh, would that not be the case if they had nuclear weapons uh, and would I uh, therefore be vindicated? <laughs> I'm tempted to say, of course, uh, but I don't think the answer. Luke, who, who, who would do that? Who would you know, try to abuse you? And some people just do it by habit. It's their way of navigating the world. So some people try to navigate the world by being as nice as possible, as being as helpful as possible, by being as pleasant as possible. Other people try to bully their way through, through life. And so some people have found that the bullying is the most effective tactic. And so they just keep using it again and again and again. So, for example, I have put up with things in jobs that many of my friends would never put up with. They would just walk out. But because when I was younger, I did not have as much clarity and, and strength as I have now. So I don't now, I don't think about defending my boundaries or putting up boundaries. It just usually comes fairly natural to me. So... If something's not working for me, if if I'm working at a place and the computer doesn't work, I speak up and say, hey, this computer doesn't work. If someone's interfering with what I need to do and it's appropriate for me to speak up, it just comes much more naturally to speak up. So, yeah, nuclear weapons are good deterrent. Mr. Putin should book one of those private Alexander Technique lessons, yes, and uh, let go of his unnecessary tension that uh, might be causing this invasion. <laughs> of the Ukraine. So yes, John J. Mearsheimer in the summer of 1993 in Foreign Affairs, all right, he, he wrote about the case for a Ukrainian nuclear deterrent, all right? So yeah, I, I think that uh, that U Ukraine should have should have kept their, their nukes. So yeah, Russian forces seize Chernobyl nuclear plant, all right? So John J. was on top of this stuff back in 1993. So John J. Mearsheimer has an excellent track record. So back in 1993, he was writing about the logic of nuclear proliferation and the case for a Ukrainian nuclear deterrent. Most Western observers want Ukraine to rid itself of nuclear weapons as quickly as possible. Europe would be more stable if Russia were to become the only nuclear-armed successor state to the Soviet Union, according to President Bill Clinton. The United States and its European allies have been pressing Ukraine to transfer all of their nuclear weapons on their territory to the Russians, who naturally think this is an excellent idea. Well, President Clinton is wrong. The conventional wisdom about Ukraine's nuclear weapons is wrong. Right? Why would Iran, for example, give up 
on the opportunity for nuclear weapons. Given the, the, the big footprint that the United States has, has planted next door to Iran and uh, the, the power of Israel's nuclear program, why would Iran, which is locked in a, in a battle with Saudi Arabia, why would Iran not want nuclear weapons? Why would North Korea not want nuclear weapons to defend themselves? So as soon as Ukraine declared its independence, so what's that, 1991, Ukraine should have been quietly encouraged to fashion its own nuclear deterrent. Even now, pressing Ukraine to become a non-nuclear state is a mistake, right? See how right he was back in 1993? Nuclear Ukraine makes sense for two reasons. Putin would never have invaded a nuclear Ukraine. So first, it is imperative to maintain peace between Russia and Ukraine. And it's not because I care or the world should care so much about Ukraine, but because the implications of Russia overrunning Ukraine means that the world's a more dangerous place and is closer to war in Europe. So the Russians have a long and bad history of relations with Ukraine. And without nuclear weapons, the Russians are inevitably going to move to reconquer Ukraine, which is happening. Ukraine cannot defend itself against a nuclear-armed Russia with only conventional weapons. And no state, including the United States, is going to extend to the Ukraine a meaningful security guarantee. Right? States extend meaningful security guarantees when it's in their best interest and it's simply not in the best interest of any major power to extend major uh, security guarantees to Ukraine. Ukrainian nuclear weapons are the only reliable deterrent to Russian aggression. If the US aim is to enhance stability in Europe, the case against a nuclear-armed Ukraine is unpersuasive. Second, it is unlikely that Ukraine will transfer its remaining nuclear weapons to Russia, the state it fears most. Case presented here for a Ukrainian nuclear deterrent is not a brief for unrestricted nuclear proliferation in Europe or anywhere else in the world. Nuclear proliferation does not axiomatically promote peace and can, in some cases, even cause war. So, for example, in my personal life, I remember I had this Orthodox rabbi who tried to bully me into taking something down on my website. I had written that he was a convert to Judaism and he wanted that kept quiet and so he asked me to remove it and I thought about it and I thought there was a public interest in people knowing that the rabbi was a convert to Judaism because there are certain things that a convert to Judaism should not do. And so I decided to leave it up there. When I decided to leave it up there, he just threatened to wage holy war on me. He was going to rewrite my Wikipedia page to make it look bad. He was going to sue me in secular court. He was going to go after me in an Orthodox Jewish court. He was going to destroy my relationship with my rabbi. He was going to make life impossible for me in in Orthodox Judaism, if I did not go along with what he wanted. And so we had we had a major conflict. And at one point, I was prepared to back down, not for his sake, not for my sake, but for the sake of a mutual friend of ours. So a mutual friend of ours made the case to me for, for peace. And so because I had so much respect and love for, for our mutual friend, I was going to go along and just completely drop it all. But the, the, the rabbi bully, he wasn't content. He wanted to keep fighting. And so, yeah, I eventually you know, stood up to him, did not take it down, uh, published his, his long, threatening, meandering correspondence. And so in that case, standing up for myself, I think was the right thing to do. And I've never been, no, no Jew, no, no rabbi uh, has tried to bully me ever since I, I successfully stood up for myself in something like 2009. Now, when I, I, I was telling my therapist about how having a well-read blog, it means people are less likely to want to bully me. 
And uh, my therapist said, well, what if your only chance to get well depends upon you putting down your weapons, putting down the, the use of, of a blog, for example, as a protection. So sometimes having you know, the threat, uh, the threat of weapons can make you feel safe, but it actually deters the possibility of intimacy with other people. So being strong is not the only answer to life. Uh, just get stronger and stronger and stronger. That, that's not the only approach to life. Generally speaking, it's, it's a good idea. And nuclear proliferation does not axiomatically promote peace. And having a blog and, you know, well, watch YouTube channel. What do we have? We've got nine live viewers right now. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying not to get intoxicated by the heady power of having nine live viewers. So try to use these things as a weapon. It's not necessarily in your best interest, but completely forswear ever using them. It's not necessarily in your best interest either, just like having nuclear weapons. So smaller European powers might lack the resources needed to make their nuclear force survivable. And venerable nuclear forces would invite a first strike in a crisis. So sometimes having nukes does not increase your protection. Just like sometimes having a block does not increase your level of protection. And widespread nuclear proliferation or widespread uh, blog proliferation can increase the number of fingers on the nuclear trigger, right? Generally speaking, you don't want to go nuclear on other people in life. But sometimes people knowing that you're willing to throw down that way, that can be a powerful deterrent. So the more fingers on the more nuclear triggers, the more likelihood that nuclear weapons can be fired due to an accident, due to unauthorized use to terrorist seizure or irrational decision-making. But sometimes nuclear proliferation or having a blog does promote peace. Right? So probably in Iran's best interest to have nuclear weapons. It would have been in the Ukraine's best interest to have nuclear weapons. When did Ukraine drop the definite article? The Ukraine. Good question. Yeah, we are the nine. You are my band of brothers. What, what, what's that great, great saying from, uh, from Shakespeare? We few, we happy few. We band of brothers. From this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And back to John Jay here. John Jay Mearsheimer writing in 1993. So he noted the breakup of the Soviet Union left Ukraine with about 4,000 nuclear weapons on its territory. Ukraine declared independence December 1, 1991, and then they declared they would transfer all of their nuclear weapons to the Soviet Union by the end of 1994 and signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty and lived the life of a non-nuclear state. Well, how do you like life as a non-nuclear state now? Do you, do you really think it's been in Ukraine's interest to give up all their nuclear weapons to Russia? Rodney Martin is here. The world is returning to the days prior to 1945. Countries that have formidable military will not longer be bound by George H.W. Bush's New World Order. So George H.W. Bush was the last globalist president that, that we had. So Rodney, if you want to come on, just uh, send me an email and uh, I'll send you a link to the, to the show.
Right. So a war between Russia and Ukraine, writes John J. Mearsheimer in 1993, would be a disaster. Right? Not because we necessarily care so much about Ukraine, but because of its implications for balance of power politics in Europe. Great power wars are costly and dangerous. They cause massive loss of life and worldwide turmoil and possibly spread to involve other countries. The likely result of that war, Russia's reconquest of Ukraine, would injure prospects for peace throughout Europe. It would increase the danger of a Russian-German collision and sharply intensify the security competition across the continent. A conventional war between Russia and Ukraine would entail vast military casualties. So Putin asked the Ukrainians to not fight him, but I don't think that's going to happen. Because Russians and the Ukrainians have a long history of mutual enmity. And this hostility, combined with the intermixing of their populations, raises the possibility that war between them could entail Bosnian-style ethnic cleansing and mass murder. And this could produce millions of refugees clamoring at the borders of Western Europe. There are 14 operational nuclear reactors in Ukraine that might produce new Chernobyls if left unattended or attacked during a conventional war. And so the consequences of such a war would then dwarf the death and suffering in the Balkans, where more than 50,000 people have died since the summer of 1991. So if nuclear weapons explode during this conflict, the cost could be huge. Also, the threat of escalation beyond the borders of Russia and Ukraine. The Russians might decide to reconquer other parts of the former Soviet Union in the midst of a war, which I think is likely. They might try to take back some of Eastern Europe. Poland and Belarus might, well, Belarus is already thrown in with Russia. Poland might join forces against Ukraine. No, that's not happening, happening, or gang up with Ukraine to prevent a Russian resurgence. So the Germans, the Americans, the Chinese could get pulled in by their fear of a Russian victory. Doubters should remember the United States had no intention of fighting in Europe when war broke out in 1914 and again in 1939. And nuclear weapons might be used accidentally or purposefully against a third state. So the whole security environment in Europe would certainly become heated and competitive in the wake of a Russian war with Ukraine. So other great powers are moving quickly and sharply to contain further Russian expansion. The Russians would then think seriously about controlling their many smaller neighbors then other great powers would move to check Russia. So you might expect the burden of deterring a resurgent Russia to fall to an American-dominated NATO, bringing back the Cold War order that kept Europe at peace for 45 years. So the United States has drastically reduced force levels in Europe over the past 30 years. Now they're starting to put troops back. Even if Russia behaves aggressively, U.S. troops are not likely to return to Europe in large numbers mainly because the Germans are capable of bearing most of the burden of checking the Russians. But do the Germans want to do that? The Germans are well located geographically to counter Russian expansion, and they are strong enough to do so. Germany not only has a powerful economy, but its population has increased by 20 million people since it merged with East Germany. But Russia would be a markedly less powerful state than the former Soviet Union. Rodney Martin says, Ukraine has never been a stable democracy. It's been a corrupt mess whose elites have prostituted it as a pawn of the West versus Russia. Okay, so uh, Rodney, I'm going to send you a link. Let me play a little bit of John Jay. The administration was in power. We refused to arm the Ukrainians because we knew it would enrage the Russians. It would scare the Russians. You want to understand that the Russians view Ukraine 
becoming a part of NATO as an existential threat. That's what's going on here. The Russians are sending a very clear message to the West. They're telling you, we take this threat seriously, and we are willing to use military force, if necessary, to eliminate this threat. The Russians are not fooling around here. So what you had happening in 2021, and of course it started before that under the Trump administration, is we were arming the Ukrainians. And when you start talking about arming the Ukrainians, those are Ukrainian forces that can fight against Russia's allies in Eastern Ukraine. One thing that really spooked the Russians was that the Turks gave the Ukrainians drones. And drones have become a very effective weapon on the battlefield, as the Azerbaijanis proved against the Armenians last year. And the Azerbaijanis were using Turkish drones. So the Turks are giving drones. The Americans and the British are giving all sorts of other weapons to the Ukrainians. You know, of course, that we define these weapons as defensive weapons. But of course, as sophisticated IR theorists, you all know that there's no such thing as a meaningful distinction between defensive weapons and offensive weapons. As we all know from the security dilemma, what looks defensive to us looks offensive to them. You give drones to the Ukrainians. Do you think the Russians are going to view those as defensive weapons? I don't think so. You start training the Ukrainian forces the way the British and the Americans do. And uh, let's have a look at the news. Germany's army chief fed up with neglect of country's military. So this is news today. The chief of the German army vented his frustration over what he sees as the long-running neglect of military readiness in his country. An unusual public rant a few hours after Russia invaded Ukraine, adding that the army was in bad shape. I'm in my 41st year of peacetime service. I would not have thought that I would have to experience a war, he said on LinkedIn Thursday. And the army, which I have the honor to command, is standing there more or less empty-handed. The options we can offer the government in support of the alliance are extremely limited. Commentators praised this guy for his brutally honest words, many of them backing his veiled criticism of consecutive German governments that have been blamed for not fulfilling NATO's targets for military spending. Germany in January offered to supply 5,000 military helmets to Ukraine to help defend against a possible invasion. Nothing like having 5,000 military helmets. So this German commander says, we have all seen it coming, but we're not able to get through with our arguments to draw the consequences after Russia's annexation of Crimea. This does not feel good. I am fed up with it. NATO territory has so far not come a direct threat, but Germany's partners in Eastern Europe are feeling constantly rising pressure. German forces were drastically scaled down after the end of the Cold War and later trained mainly for missions such as in Afghanistan. And the chat says, Germany cannot and do not trust themselves to have a military culture. They can't handle it. Germany is psychologically broken. Winston Churchill said, the Hun is always either at your throat or at your feet. The Huns are now at Russia's feet. Adam says, the U.S. is not supposed to intervene since the Russians held up their word to not interfere with the reunification of Germany. Would people care as much about Ukraine if the Super Bowl wasn't over? <laughs> yeah, this is our substitution for 
the Super Bowl. You don't think the Russians are going to see that as a threat? I can guarantee you they are, right? So what's happening here? We're arming, we're training the Ukrainians. And if you look at how we're dealing with Ukraine diplomatically, we're basically talking about Ukraine as if it were an ally or a partner. That's the kind of rhetoric we use when we talk about Ukraine. So it looks like diplomatically and militarily, the bonds between the West, especially the United States, and Ukraine are tightening. At the same time, we're doing a number of provocative things outside of Ukraine that really bother the Russians enormously. So having a look at Peter Zion's Twitter feed, he says, yes, I'm of two minds. I'd like the Germans to do more, but I'm also a student of history, so I know what it means when the Germans do more. And uh, Schrader's attempting to keep a foot on both sides. Uh, Germany's Schrader, former chancellor of Germany, says Europe must not cut all ties with Russia. So the West at present has not agreed to a swift cutoff, which would eliminate uh, Russia from the international banking system. So the, this is Sahil Bloom. With the rapid deterioration of the Russian-Ukraine situation, you're going to hear a lot about SWIFT in the coming days. SWIFT is short for the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. It is a global cooperative of financial institutions based in Belgium. So that, that means I can move money from a bank account in Australia to one in America or vice versa for either you know, nothing or $6. Uh, SWIFT was formed in 1973 when 239 banks from 15 countries came together to establish a way to cross-handle handle cross-border payments. Today, SWIFT connects more than 11,000 financial institutions across 200-plus countries. Think of it like a simple email system enabling secure messages across its members. An average of 40 million messages a day, including orders, payment confirmations, foreign exchange, and trades. SWIFT does not do any transfers or hold any funds, but it's a critical part of the communication infrastructure that enables cross-border money flows, the key part of the global financial system. Not a political organization, but uh, SWIFT is often overlooked as a geopolitical tool as part of sanctions packages. The cutting off the nation's banks from SWIFT access restricts flows into and out of that nation. Right? It would be devastating. It happened... In 2012, with the sanctions package on Iran in retaliation for its nuclear weapons, happened. it was looked at in 2013 and 2014 in response to Russia's actions in Crimea. The cutting off SWIFT is viewed as a significant move, and Russia would consider it an act of war. The cutting off SWIFT access to Russia is still very much on the table as part of a sweeping sanctions package. Challenge is that it is a real double-edged sword. Russia is a massive economy with tentacles that reach all around the world is a key energy supplier to Europe and the world, is an exporter of materials critical to the manufacturing of jet engines, semiconductors, automotives, electronics, and fertilizers. Cutting off Russia from SWIFT would impact the flow of payments for these industries. Russia has been building an in-house system since 2014. It means they may be able to temper some of the impact a cutoff would have on its economy. And a cutoff from SWIFT would have longer-term second-order effects on Bitcoin and non-fiat currencies. Russia may seek to circumvent the impact of the restrictions via a combination of its in-house system and a push away from the U.S. dollar. The British foolishly run a destroyer through Russian territorial waters in the Black Sea this past summer, June 2021. 
the Americans take a bomber and they drive it right up against the Russian coastline in the Black Sea. This really bothers the Russians, unsurprisingly. So what you see happening here is the Russians have a very powerful sense that NATO is moving eastward. NATO is moving right up to the Russian border, mainly by turning Ukraine into a de facto member of the alliance, but also with provocative measures like this British destroyer and this American bomber. The Russians, as Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister said, reached the boiling point. They had it. They had it. They're not interested really in negotiating anymore. They're interested in altering the status quo. And the end result is you've had this massive military buildup, which is doing enormous damage to the Ukrainian economy, which was already a bad. Hey, Luke, how's my sound? All right. Well, welcome back. I don't think I've talked to you since I got back from down under. So welcome. Welcome back. Um, you know, this, uh, of course, this was going to happen sooner or later. And I, I'm enjoying the hypocrisy uh, on the part of the West. Uh, you know, Putin recognized the two breakaway republics and then accepted their invitation uh, for military aid. And then Putin widened it. Uh, when he said he was going to demilitarize and denazify, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, uh, you know, a threat on his border. Uh, this is the same playbook that the United States and the West have used for for centuries. Panama was created in the exact same way. There was no country of Panama before Teddy Roosevelt wanted to create the Panama Canal. It, it was a breakaway portion of another country and the United States immediately recognized it and went in and built the Panama Canal. We can go on and go on on, on these examples. But the fact of the matter is uh, when the uh, Soviet Union uh, was breaking up back in, I remember these days back in 1990, 91, and of course the talks of the reunification of Berlin, there were assur assurances given by Sec then Secretary of State James A. Baker III that there would not be encroachment on the borders of the Russian Federation. No more than, uh, you know, for, for obvious reasons, uh, similar to uh, President Kennedy's concern of Soviet missiles in Cuba. It's the exact same thing. And now we're seeing just, you know, loads of hypocrisy. And uh, I, I'm just wondering, you know, what is the strategic interest of Ukraine to the United States, other than I can draw a historical comparison uh, with Germany's position in 1938 about Czechoslovakia having been artificially created. And it was literally what was described by the Germans then as a sword up into the gut of, of Germany. And it was just a strategic threat. Uh, you know, Putin, if you listen to what he's been saying, he sound more like JFK in 19, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis than anything else. He talked about, you know, Ukraine could join NATO and then reactivate their nuclear arms uh, program the very next day, which was also, that was the thing, the Ukrainian nuclear arms were transferred to the Russian Federation. There were agreements made back then. And of course, all of these agreements have been, uh, you know, uh, pardon my language, Luke, but shit canned uh, for, you know, obvious reasons. It has to do with global politics and desire, you know, of the West uh, to dominate. And the West is, you know, talk about Russia being in decline. Uh, West isn't far behind them. Uh, 
I mean, uh, we're worried about defending the sovereignty and territorial boundaries of, of Ukraine, an artificial you know, country for all intent and purposes, as opposed to defending our own. We can't even defend our own border. Uh, and so we're going to go and you know, worry about Ukraine. If you look at the history of Ukraine from 1990, 91, when they broke up, you know, which was not a massively popular idea of breaking up the Soviet Union within the, all of those peoples. Only, the only three Soviet republics that broadly supported the breakup of the Soviet Union was Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which really had no connectivity to the old Russian Empire uh, to, to begin to begin with. Um, so, uh, you know, if you look at Ukraine from 1990, 91 through how many? I mean, there's only been two presidents that have served a full term. That was the that was the inaugural president of Ukraine, Leonid Kravchuk, and then the uh, the candy man, the old the oligarch uh, Petro Poroshenko. And maybe, you know, Zelensky, but all the rest of them, they, they've been that had these various revolutions and coups and under the auspices of a of a of a color democratic revolution. And it was all about uh, Ukraine's oligarchs and Ukraine's uh, elites uh, prostituting the country uh, at the whims of the West to be that sword into the gut of the Russian Federation. So if you put things correct, you know, you know, in terms of national interest. Putin is defending his nas national interests. He doesn't need a, a, an un you know, instability right on his border. He doesn't need these clashes in the eastern uh, provinces. By the way, everything east of the Dnieper River in Ukraine, uh, those are Russians. Those are ethnic Russians. I saw an interview of a Ukrainian army colonel in the eastern region, and he was asked specifically by a, uh, I believe it was a Deutsche Welle uh, uh, correspondent, did the population in that area support Ukraine, the Ukrainian army? And he says, no, we have the breakaway republics, you know, to the east of us. And we're actually in the center of areas that just don't support us broadly. So, you know, uh, when uh, uh, Putin says he was acting also in the interests of his citizens, Russian citizens, and the U.S. just screamed about that because the West, Western countries don't care about their citizens. They care more about immigrants or illegal aliens, uh, as opposed to their citizens. The concept of a country, you know, standing up uh, for its citizens and its people is has become quite alien in Western countries, and we're not better we're not better for it. And what do you think the United States should do in this situation? Nothing. We have no strategic interest there. Now, obviously, there's a lot of uh, of business interests, and what I think this is ultimately about, Luke is Vladimir Putin has interrupted the cash flow of a lot of powerful people in the West uh, through the, you know, the systemic Ukrainian corruption. I mean, the big guy got 10% of his crackhead son's uh, uh, influence peddling business. So I think what ultimately the West is, is, is upset about is there's been some cash flow to some, you know, elitists and better people in the West who's been interrupted, you know, Putin's just, it's not going to happen anymore. So uh, the United States has no geopolitical interest. It has no national security interest. If it did, then back in 1918, 1919, when Ukraine first became independent as a result of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk between the new Soviet Union and Germany, which granted Ukraine independence, uh, the West seen fit to void that agreement and place Ukraine back into the bosom of the USSR. 
So, uh, you know, this has nothing to do with a democracy. Ukraine is a basket case. It's not a democracy. Um, it, it's a it's a hotbed of corruption. It's barely a real state. I mean, you can make the case that west of the Dnieper River could be, you know, Ukraine. Those are ethnic Ukrainians. They predominantly speak Ukrainian. They identify culturally as Ukrainian. But everything east, those are all Russians. They want to be Russians. And it goes also to the, the Crimea issue. We hear Russia took Crimea. Crimea was never historically part of, of, uh, of Ukraine. It was always Russian. It was Khrushchev in 1957, I believe, that just unilaterally said Crimea would be a province or, a, or an oblast uh, of Ukraine because he himself was Ukrainian. And members of the Politburo had written, you know, you know after the collapse that it was never illegal uh, it was never legal according to then Soviet law because there wasn't a majority of the Politburo uh, that voted to do it. So, I mean, th this is just a this is this is basically a, uh, uh, a a continuation or a restarting of the Cold War, which the U.S. desperately needs in terms of the military industrial complex and a lot of elites that would make money off of a new Cold War and. Uh, Putin, he's just, I think he's wanting to in instability and in uh, the possibility of having, you know, a hostile uh, nation, a nation that is occupied by people that are not, you know, friends of, of, of Russia right there, you know, having a, a proverbial sword into the stomach uh, of the Russian of the Russian Federation. Okay, so let's move away from what should happen and what should be U.S. policy. What do you think will happen with regards to Ukraine? you think that uh, Russia seizes Ukraine and stops there? Do you think they then move into other countries? Do you think they ha have you know wider wider plans beyond the Ukraine? Okay, all of the all of the hyperbole of, of Putin wanting to reassemble the USSR. He that's not his desire nor objective, and he knows that he can't. And he doesn't have to. Belarus is essentially a client state now of, uh, of Putin. In fact, they had an agreement that they had been talking about off and on. Belarus and Russia were supposed to rejoin years ago. There's a, a, an agreement that was made in the aftermath of, of the catastrophe that was Boris Yeltsin, where Belarus would return and they would have some sort of, you know, co you know, uh, confederation. Uh, uh, also, you know, with with uh, Putin bailing Yukashenko uh, out, he doesn't need to annex Belarus. It's a client state. Kazakhstan, when Russian troops went in and helped quell uh, the uh, unrest in Kazakhstan, they that that made them closely, more closely aligned uh, with the Russian Federation. He doesn't need to constitute the USSR to have the same effect in terms of access. The Russian spaceport is still in Kazakhstan. There's only two, uh, you know, well, five that have had an issue remaining closely allied uh, to, to Russia. And that is the three Baltic states, which were taken by Stalin. They never had any uh, cultural affinity or you know, anything to do with, with Russia or the Soviet Union. Georgia, interestingly, uh, who, despite their anti-Russian rhetoric, still has statues of Stalin all around the country, their favorite son, and parts of Ukraine parts of Ukraine, it's, it's really interesting uh, to note that the when there's been this tension in Eastern Europe between the former Soviet republics and, uh, uh, and Russia, uh, it's been those five states. But in Ukraine, it's always been limited to the western half of Ukraine. I talk about the Dnieper River. That's where, you know, that's, that's Ukraine. What's east of the Dnieper River, it's not. So I, he, I don't think, I think what he does in the end, Luke, my gut is 
that he takes, he goes to the Dnieper River and stops and then imposes, I, I think Ukraine sues for peace and he imposes a treaty on them that where they will renounce any uh, ability or intention to join uh, NATO. And uh, so uh, that now what he does, if he creates a new, uh, some sort of new state with those lands or he annexes them, uh, that's that remains to be seen. He doesn't have to annex them uh, for them to be supporters of Russia. And if another country gets involved in this war, in, in a shooting war, uh, who, who do you think would be most likely? I mean, do you, do you think, do you think, for example, China might seize this opportunity to try to take Taiwan? Do you think Japan might seize some of the islands that Russia took from them after World War Two, or do you see Germany getting into a war with Russia? Uh, Germany is pathetic. Uh, they're the German. You know, they don't have any any military. I mean, they're, they're not Germany for all intent and purposes died in 1945. What you have now is a, a Western, uh, you know, vassal state with the exception of parts of the old DDR, which still clings to some tra tradition, you know, old German traditions. But Germany is in no position to do anything. They're toothless. They're too busy distributing flyers uh, to immigrants saying that all German men would be willing to have gay sex with immigrants. You just got to ask for consent. That's the sad state of Germany. The only country that would put up a fight if they were threatened, and keep in mind, the only thing standing between, and I heard this said, and I can't remember where, standing between the Russian army uh, in Belarus, and Russia, and now Ukraine, and Germany, and even France, is the Polish army. And uh, Poland has a history uh, with, uh, uh, with the Russians. They don't like each other, but they also have some degree of distrust with the rest of what's going on in West. Poland has kind of carved out its own niche along with Hungary. Uh, Hungary has gotten closer to Russia. Nobody in Europe, to answer your question, there is not one single European country that is going to deploy troops uh, into Ukraine to fight for Ukraine. There's going to be a lot of barking. There's going to be talk a lot of e economics. The United States certainly is not going to because we just don't, you know, since the last time we fought a serious adversary was uh, World War II. And we had to be attacked directly to get into that war because the pop, you know, the public opinion uh, was against it just as much as the public opinion is against going in today. And all this talk of sanctions and destroying uh, the Russian economy. Has anybody seen the U.S. stock market and the price of oil this morning? I mean, it's going to have, you know, uh, every action has has a reaction and some blowback. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about talking about Nord Stream 2. Well, that pipeline was never operational, has not been operational. So no harm, no foul. We go to uh, the United States, which imported, I think, last year upwards of 30 million barrels of oil a day, up to 30, between 18 and 30 million barrels of oil per day from Russia because we have eviscerated our own oil supply under the Biden administration. So are we going to, what if, what if Vlad literally turns the oil supply off to the United States, turns the natural gas supply, which there is no country in Europe that doesn't get at least 35% of their natural gas uh, for winter heating from Russia. If he shuts those off, you can talk about sanctions all day long, but he has, he has some tools in the toolbox, which we're already seeing in terms of the price of oil, which benefits him. He's a petro state, so he's making billions every day. Uh, so, you know, this is foolish. This is foolhardy. This is a Russia-Ukrainian thing for the West to do. I mean, the uh, Ukraine is not a NATO uh, uh, country and not a NATO member. 
NATO itself is a dinosaur that should be you know, tossed in the, into history. And then we have, uh, you know, there's no, there's no mutual aid agreement between the United States uh, and Ukraine or even, even any European country. They don't well, have any nobody's suggesting defense. sending troops to Ukraine. I mean, that's that's ludicrous. It's it's the well, the, Luke. I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's the only way you're going to stop a so-called invasion of Ukraine. Oh, you're not no, no one's going to stop it. No one's going to be able to stop yeah, of it. Of course, it's right. just what happens next. What are the implications? Does does Putin stop stop there? Oh, I can give. I think we should look to the Crimea model, Luke. Uh, mm -hmm. The Crimean model, where yeah. he took Crimea back into the Russian Federation, and people screamed. They imposed sanctions, and life went on. I think he's going to go to the Dnieper River and stop. And there's going to be some sort of treaty between uh, Ukraine and Russia because President Zelensky would rather keep half of his country than not have it at all. And certainly, he doesn't want to see Russian troops marching down the boulevards and squares uh, of Kiev. So I think the 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 model to look at is both what happened in Georgia. Putin carved out what he wanted and the world screamed, but he still got what he wanted. Same thing with Crimea. I think it's going to repeat here and, you know, we'll see. And what do you think about the United States trying to renew a deal with Iran over its nuclear program under the Biden administration? Well, I don't think it's going to happen because there's no incentive I mean, Iran has fostered closer ties with Russia and India and China. And of course, China kind of is sitting in the catbird seat, not because of uh, uh, Taiwan, what they may or may not do with, with Taiwan. But as long as China buys Russian oil and trades uh, uh, with Russia, uh, they're the bank. And, uh, you know, India, too. I can't. You know, I, India has a lot of ties with, with Russia in terms of of, uh, of commerce. So. With Russia still having access to Chinese and Indian markets, as does uh, uh, Iran, Iran kind of created the blueprint for surviving uh, for surviving sanctions by fostering regional trade and being able to sell uh, their goods, including their oil. So, you know, uh, I, I don't think there's ever going to be another Iran deal. I think that's gone because there's no incentive for the Iranians to go back into it. Plus. Iran just doesn't, you know, from their point of view, they can sign an agreement tomorrow, Luke, with the United States. Trump comes back and cancels it. So what's the point in having an agreement that is subject to the whims of an administration? It used to be that treaties were recognized regardless of the administration. That's that's gone out the window now. Is our U.S. Iranian ties improving under Biden? No. No. Um, I I don't think so. I mean, from Iran's point of view, they're not going to have any substantial change uh, with regard to the United States until those sanctions are, are, are gone. And uh, uh, also, Iran still has a, a memory of, you know, of the Mossadegh uh, coup by the CIA. So, I mean, there's never going to be good relations with Iran until there is a significant, and I emphasize significant, generational change in leadership uh, in Iran which is not that, you know, unreasonable to think because the, the mullahs and the hardcore, they're an aging part of Iranian society. A vast majority of Iran's population were born after the 1979 uh, revolution. And they're young and they want to be hip and they're probably, you know, not as, so shall we say, orthodox as their parents and grandparents. So surely this conflict is going to be bad for supply chains. It's going to mean 
increased inflation, I would expect that energy prices in, in Europe are going to double or triple. And the United States, however, is well positioned as we're essentially energy independent, are we not? Well, you think we're well positioned? You have an administration right now that's going to be in office at least until you know January of 2025 that uh, I believe views this as an opportunity to change, you know, uh, to flip the switch and actually impose the Green New Deal uh, by way of just people not, you know, well, you can't afford gas anymore because it's $10 a gallon because we're not importing any more oil and we've shut down all of the pipelines. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, yes, in an ideal situation with a rational president that would be pragmatic, which I believe you should be pragmatic over ideological, uh, Biden should reopen the Keystone Pipeline. He should reopen the federal leases and make us a net energy exporter like we were previously. The problem is Biden is surrounded by ideologues and he tends uh, to go with them. So we're going to be screwed. We probably will have close to $7. Well, it's already pretty close. The, the gas station there, Luke, on, on uh, La Cienega and Beverly is already six bucks a gallon. Is, uh, is Putin acting in Russia's best interests? Sure he is. Sure he is. I mean, the United States, if, if there was this type of situation, if there if Mexico along our southern border had become like eastern Ukraine, the United States would not stand for it. If Russia had negotiated a new treaty uh, with Mexico and was you know putting in troops and all sorts of things, building the United States would not stand for it. We didn't stand for it with Cuba. And uh, we certainly wouldn't stand for it. He is doing, Putin has taken, has done nothing that the West, and I say West, particularly France, Great Britain, and Germany, has done throughout the century. So the problem is the West doesn't like it when they have to take it up the hind end, you know, the same way that they used to, you know, give it to other people, other countries. That's what's really at heart. And of course, the economic, I can't stress enough the economic interest. Putin has interrupted the cash flow of some really powerful, rich elites that have been mining uh, Ukraine since the fall of the Soviet Union. And how do you think Putin might react if the United States uh, bans Russian, Russian banks from the, the SWIFT financial transaction system? I don't think it'll have any significant... Uh, uh, any, first of all, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I don't. I think that's the red line for both in the Euro, the Europeans, particularly if he shuts their natural gas off and he shuts off oil exports to the U.S. I mean, to me, I mean, sure, there are more tools in the West toolbox because Russia under Yeltsin allowed itself to become part of a Western-dominated economic system. What, what what the West is actually proposing is doing what Canada is doing to the truckers. You know, not letting them be able to you know trade their goods, not to be able to access their bank account, et cetera, et cetera. This is a form of economic warfare. And sure, the West has a few more tools in its toolbox. The problem is there was a double edged sword and, quote, integrating Russia into that economy. They still are an oil exporter, which, like I said, 30 million gallon of barrels a day. That would have a significant impact on the U.S. economy, not just in gas prices, but across the uh, the board in terms of prices for every anything, because fuel prices would go up. So you know there is there's the, there's the blowback. If you do one thing, what's going to be the impact? And you know in wartime, it's what's the casualty rate going to be? Well, what are going to be the economic casualties of doing such a thing by the West? I don't think they're willing to risk it. I know the Europeans definitely won't. Um, 
So, you know, I, I, I think we're seeing probably uh, all that the West is going to do. They're going to clutch their pool uh, pearls. They're going to uh, more. They're going to be getting on their soapbox and, and engaging in, in uh, uh, hypocritical moral uh, uh, rhetoric. And at the end of the day, it's going to be just like Georgia uh, when uh, a few of those, a couple of their state, their oblasts were carved out. It's going to be just like Crimea. And uh, 10 years down the road, the United States is still going to be calling for the return of Crimea and West, uh, Eastern Ukraine uh, to Ukraine. And what do you think about the Can Canadian trucker convoy protest and the way that the Canadian government responded? Well, I mean, it just goes to show that some of the people that claim to be liberal democratic nations are, are, are hypocrites. They're, they're tyrants. Uh, and the fact that the, uh, they've been saying that now, you know, now that they've broken up this demonstration, which, by the way, Canada supported all of the George Floyd riots where things were burned and destroyed and people, they thought that was great. A few truckers go in. Well, not a few, a lot. And they engage in what essentially was a 1960s sit-in protesting a so-called democratic uh, country and you saw what they did they not they basically canada has instituted their own enabling act luke and so you know this is why i'm laughing at everybody pointing fingers all these western leaders pointing their fingers at putin when they are engaged in a soft core repression candy coated repression of their own people and anybody that dissents hmm and uh, how would you assess the Biden administration? It seems to me that because Biden is so weak politically, that he's being a lot stronger in response to this invasion than he should be. So he's sending troops to Poland, sending troops and, and planes in, into Europe because his own standing is so weak that uh, he's compensating. And this is not in America's best interests, seems to me. No, it, no, it's not, because normally when you start massing borders and poke the bear historically, uh, Russia, you know, Putin was never going to back down, Luke. That's not his style. And he couldn't. He has fostered such a strong man, you know, Russian nationalist image in Russia. There was no way he was never going to be able. I mean, they left him no path when they basically when the West would not negotiate on any of his core issues, which were all legitimate. If you take away, you know, I know people will say, oh, you're a Russian bot. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there was no movement. There was no desire to be flexible on any of the issues that Russia submitted in writing. It was all our way or the highway and we're going to sanction and do all this. That left Putin no door to get out, walk away from this with any sort of, uh, of standing. So, yeah, it was going to happen. And uh like I said, the only thing that's uh, different is the West doesn't like uh, anybody else doing uh, what they've been doing to people for years. Look at the look at the stock market right now. Look at the stock market. It's just falling. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see in a week. I think this will all be resolved in a week. I think by this time next week, Luke, the map of Eastern Europe, that's what it's going to be in perpetuity. And uh I think there won't be any more Russian, you know, offensive operations um, uh, to uh, to speak of. And uh, in a week, we're going to be where we're at. That's going to be the extent of Putin's in initiatives. And we're going to be in a Cold War. Uh, 
You know, it's interesting, Luke, if you if, if, if Biden was really serious, he would recall the uh, U.S. ambassador, shut the embassy down. I mean, if he was really, really serious, uh, you know, sending troops to Poland. Yeah. OK, uh, that's that's fine. Um, but uh, you notice he's not sending them to Ukraine. And uh, the, the Middle East seems to have largely dropped out of the news. Is anything going on in, in the Middle East the last few months? Well, they're probably relieved that, uh, you know, the focus is on somebody else. But them, uh, somebody said in the uh, chat, Biden sounds a lot like me. And I'm just wondering what they mean by that, because that's really a silly, silly statement. Uh, you know, Biden is, the you know, Biden has got everything wrong in, in his career. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know where that, that comments come from. But, uh, yeah, the Middle East, Luke, they're probably happy that the focus is someplace else. So watch for some sort of chicanery there. Uh, China, I, I'll go on a limb. China is not going to use this as a, as, a, as a freebie to take Taiwan. That's an entirely different dynamic. But, but, let me just say, but if China wanted to take Taiwan, it would be the same thing. Uh, Western, uh, the West would uh, clutch their pearls and make a bunch of hyper, uh, you know, hypocritical moral uh, statements. And uh, that would be it. If China wanted Taiwan, they could have it and nobody's going to do anything about it. Your prior comment about Japan taking some islands from Russia, uh, that won't happen. Japan's is not that stupid. And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, who knows? I could be wrong. And this could be, this could start all sorts of 1914 type, you know, wildfires that spread after the assassination of the Archduke. Who knows? I think that's what the West and particularly in Europe, they're trying to avoid. They want to, you know, they'll do their sanctions. They'll shut down a pipeline that is not operational. Uh, they'll moralize and bloviate and, and posture, but they're just not going to, they're not going to fight Russia. Russia's going to have Western Ukraine, Crimea, and those provinces in Georgia, and there's nothing the West can do about it um, at all. I'm no longer hearing much in the news about the rise of China. China seems to be swamped with their, their own problems these days. Anything that you've noticed? Well, remember, I, I said back in your show, back I think when Kyle was still on it, uh, that China was a paper tiger. I mean, if you go, uh, you know, beyond the coast, China is, you know, a third world country. Uh, yeah, they've experienced significant growth, but China is probably where uh, the uh, uh, economics come into play more so than Russia. China has a, a much solid, a much stronger economy and countries are low. I mean, keep in mind, China dictates the, to the NBA here in the United States. They significantly have more uh, muscle in terms of economy and, and ways to combat U.S. sanctions uh, than, than Russia. Russia has an ace in, has two aces, Luke. That's their military uh, and two, uh, their, uh, their oil. And right now, uh, uh, they're really uh, showing off. Uh, they're making billions a day because the oil prices are going up. They will only, the more sanctions they pile on, the higher oil prices will go up, which means there'll be blowback in the United States and, and Europe. And that's where I think they're really having a hard time, Luke, is right now we have an inflation problem literally globally. And they're afraid if they overreach on this Ukrainian thing, are the Ukrainians worth excessive uh, supply chain problems and excessive inflation in their own countries? 
I mean, if I was a Western leader or president, I'd say no. I mean, it's just it's just not. Let why the did, Russians and Ukrainians sort it out. I mean, why did it take President Zelensky so long to try to call Vladimir Putin? Because the United States and Britain and France, they were telling him, no, you, we'll stand with you. You stand with us. It was only on the eve when he realized he was going to get overrun that he tried to make a phone call and Putin didn't pick up the phone. I mean, this should have been Zelensky should have been negotiating and should have been, you know, talking to Russia a lot a long time ago instead of being this willing pawn of the West. Because the West, Luke, has a history of really not they'll 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 talk good to their to their puppets or their pawns or their vassal states or their allies. Uh, but when the proverbial shit show happens, the United States does not have a good record of fidelity to its allies and and uh, quote unquote partners. So California in particular has been increasingly inundated by a homelessness problem over the last few years. Uh, do you have any thoughts on what might be some conservative solutions to the homelessness thing? Well, first, you get them off the streets. And uh, two, you stop treating them as some sort of protected class right uh three you take the mentally ill and put them in the the loony bin and then the other ones the drug addicts you give them a choice to either get in rehab and get cleaned up uh, and go to one of those uh shelters i mean if you go out there and talk i think it was ktla luke went out sent some poor reporter down to skid row which i felt sorry the guy probably had to have all sorts of uh, medical care afterward because what he was exposed to and a vast majority of those people down there were either mentally ill or drug addicts. And all of them, almost everybody that guy interviewed, they would not go into these uh, shelters because there were rules they'd have to abide by. It's interesting. We have a massive homeless problem, and yet there are beds and shelters right now. And that's according to the KTLA report that I saw. So, you know, what are what's I don't this isn't really a liberal or conservative uh, uh, issue. It's a fact of. Of, of this business is saying that the you know a mentally ill person with a 65 IQ that is dumping buckets of diarrhea on people, which happened, that happened outside the uh, city city hall, uh, they have you know some sort of superior right to live on public streets, sidewalks, assault people. That that's the problem is that we're not you know you didn't have this type of problem back you know even as late as the 70s, there was the ability to to involuntarily commit these type of people. And of course, drug drug addicts, I, I have no sympathy for at all. I mean, they, they should be locked up. Are there any American politicians who you like these days? Oh, let me think. Um, in terms of like or agree with, or mm -hmm. you know, I you know, I I think that probably uh, you know, uh, heck. I can't think of any that you know, here's the problem, Luke, is no one's pragmatic anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, ideology has now is now dominating the, uh, you know, the agenda. You cannot uh, you cannot ideology. Let me put it this way. Ideology plays no role in picking up the trash, getting police on the streets, making sure that the water valves works and the toilets flush. And the problem is ideology has now dominated everything including like i said the homeless situation we have to apply an ideology to that we have to apply an ideology to public works that's the problem and that's why i'm hard pressed to come up with you know a politician i mean my local politicians i like them i mean they're they're doing the job uh but when you get up into congress and the senate and the presidential wannabes it's kind of pathetic 
we're a country of 300 and what is it? 340 million loops, yes. I think now, or yes. 360, something like that. Yes. And, uh, you know, I don't know what our average IQ is, but I think the average Amer- US IQ has probably dropped since uh, 1990. 19, oh, oh, definitely. Uh, but but beyond that, uh, you know, that, that's that's the problem. And it's now it's into the populace. Now the pop, if you say that, look, man, we have a, a broken water system. We're probably going to have to pony up a half a cent when we buy a big gulp at Seven Eleven. Everybody applies. Well, I have a conservative view on taxes. Okay, then don't gripe when your water doesn't work. And I'm not advocating. I don't. I hate taxes. I don't like the. I, I think the income tax should be abolished. I don't like the property tax on individuals. But at the same time, it's become so ideal, ideological, and we see that with this Ukraine thing. It's interesting that Ukraine seems to have united a large segment of the Republican Party and liberal Democrats who used to be very pro-Soviet to some degree and anti-war. And now they're all banging the war drums. I think that's fascinating. And what about the the crime surge, the Ferguson effect, the Black Lives Matter effect? We've had this massive increase in, in crime since May of 2020. What do you think we can do about that? Well, first of all, people, you need to get rid of Gascon in L.A. Let's talk about that a little bit and to get rid of the New York. You need to get rid of these DAs that won't prosecute crime that, that considers. Just, that, well, let me go back. Since this George Floyd garbage, criminal worship seems to be a prevailing uh, theology now. Uh, why do we worship criminals? And part of that is, you know, everything flows from culture and the culture has been so polluted and contaminated that people are literally culturally and politically to some degree schizophrenic. And, uh, you know, that's how do you solve crime? You arrest criminals, you prosecute them without regard to race, creed or color, uh, you know, and, and, and don't be afraid of being called a racist if you're enforcing the law equally. And that's what's happened. It's you you arrest uh, the guy that ran over all the people in Wisconsin I mean, there's no news about that because, you know, there's no news about that. And that guy was a was a was an activist as well. Uh, So, you know, everything has become so ideological and politicized that, you know, the the average person, the average citizen is who is suffering. The people that really aren't political, they want to go about their day. They want to go to work, go home and get home safely. They want to be able to go out to dinner without being harassed or murdered or assaulted. And, uh, you know, it's because of this criminal worship and this business of hyper uh, weaponizing identity politics. And that was probably bound to happen given the demographics and the IQ changes since 1990 in this country. Have you read any good books lately? I started uh, uh, reading my last uh, professor, Eugene Weber, the UCLA professor, his Western Civilization book. And boy, it's good, but man, it is a heavy read. And it's like a thousand pages. <laughs> okay, Rodney, any final words? No, it's just, you know, hey, buckle up and enjoy the ride. It's going to be uh, interesting. But ultimately, there's not going to be a World War III over this. And sanctions will, you know, ha- have, a, have a negative effect on those, you know, applying them as well, particularly in Europe. So. Like I said, I think probably next week we'll see the revised map, what it's going to look like. I think it'll be everything east of the Dnieper River. It could be less, uh, but we'll uh, see. Like we've seen on the screen, I just seen that's probably a timeline. Putin wants to rebuild the Soviet Union. That is hyperbole and garbage used to gin up 
uh, people. And sadly, like we talked about, the IQ has dropped. It works. It worked in the Gulf uh, War. It worked in the Iraq War. And uh, keep in mind, the media, uh, the media, uh, because of their you know, ratings, are are gonna are gonna push it. They're just as guilty as as xenophobic uh, politicians. And yeah. they have no problem sending somebody else's kids to die uh, in some sort of stupid war that has no net uh, effect on our national security. Okay, Rodney, great to catch up with All you, right. man. Thanks for having me on, Luke. Take yeah. care. Take care, Rodney. Bye-bye. Take care. Okay. So let's have a look at this great John Mearsheimer essay from 1993. It says, A multipolar Europe with a German-Russia Security competition at its core might be inevitable. Germany and Russia will probably be the two most powerful states in post-Cold War Europe. An independent Ukraine dampens that competition because it is a formidable barrier between Russia and Germany. Remove that key buffer, and the borders of the two most powerful states on the continent would be much closer to each other, the territory in between occupied by weak states. An intense political rivalry focused on this new buffer zone will probably result. And then the next section of this foreign affairs essay is headlined, Why Russian-Ukrainian Conflict is Likely. First, the situation between Ukraine and Russia is ripe for the outbreak of security competition. Great powers that share a long and unprotected common border, like that between Russia and Ukraine, often lapse into competition driven by security fears. Russia and Ukraine might overcome this dynamic and learn to live together in harmony, but it'd be unusual if they do, <laughs> right? So... When, when you've got an unprotected border with, with another state, yeah, it, it's possible you can live together in harmony, but because we never know what, what the other party might do, it, it's not likely. So there is the danger of hyper-nationalism, the belief that other nations are both inferior and threatening and must therefore be dealt with harshly. So I'm reading a book called Aftermath, Germany After World War II, and it talked about the German widespread fear of strangers and, and people who are different. That's just the flip side of being nationalist, which means you love your own kind. So the more intensely you love your own kind, the more suspicious and negative you will be towards outsiders. People who have a low disgust uh, reflex with regard to outsiders then have also weak bonds with their own kind. Right? So everything comes with a price. So expressions of Russian and Ukrainian nationalism could explode. Neither people like nor trust each other. They have a grim history, and that history provides explosive material that could ignite conflict. Russia has dominated an unwilling and angry Ukraine for more than two centuries. Russia has attempted to crush Ukraine's sense of self-identity. Ukrainians are bound to lay heavy blame on the Russians for their vast suffering under communism. And against this explosive psychological backdrop, Small disputes could trigger an outbreak of hyper-nationalism on either side. Well, I don't see any hyper-nationalism on the side of Russia these days, but uh, I think there is some in Ukraine. So how many young men in Ukraine are willing to fight and to die for their country? Here's some uh, John Mishon. case before the crisis. So Ukraine's situation is getting worse and worse. And the Russians have sent a very clear signal to the West that if they up the ante... And this was recorded February 21, three days ago. They, meaning the West, if the West ups the ante, the Russians will up the ante. 
And again, Ukraine is not becoming a part of NATO. So that's where we are today. We have this major crisis, which goes back really to April 2008. That's, that, that's the genesis, that decision. So who would you rather hear on uh, Ukraine? Would you rather hear John Mishheimer or Masha Gessen? Journalist Masha Gessen's... The reference point here is the air war in Kosovo in 1999. In 1999, uh, you, uh, you... Yeah, no, I, I, I can't take... Sorry, sorry. Right, Joe Biden says Putin wants to rebuild the Soviet Union. Well, I think he wants to build more than what Russia has, but considerably less than what the Soviet Union had. Okay, so there are many disputes already on the horizon between Russia and Ukraine. This is Putin writing back in 1993, ownership of the Black Sea Fleet, control of Crimea, which Russia already has, ownership of Ukraine's nuclear arsenal. Many Russians would change the present border with Ukraine and even reject the idea of an independent Ukraine. So Bismarck said 120 years ago that he doesn't hate Poland and he has complete empathy for Poland's desire for nationalism, but it's not in Germany's interest at that time to have Poland as a nation state and they would crush any move towards statehood by nationalistic Poles. So you can have empathy for your opponent's desires and nationalist feelings, but that doesn't mean that uh, a strong nation state next to you isn't going to cause you considerable worry. And there is a problem of mixed population. So about 12 million Russians live in Ukraine. They're about 25% of Ukraine's population and about 5 million Ukrainians live in Russia. So abuse of either minority by the local majority could be a flashpoint. So to deter Russian aggression in a future crisis, Ukraine might uh, need nuclear weapons because there are no conventional deterrents that are viable. And to ruthlessly extract resources from its very poor population is not going to still provide you with conventional military power. Conventional military power is significantly more expensive than nuclear military power, requires a much larger military and requires far more popular mobilization. So nuclear weapons are the answer. Ukraine gave them up, and this is the price. Now, vilifying nuclear weapons is a fashionable sport in the West, and you believe they are a major source of tension between states, that their deterrent value is quite limited. Many people want to rid the world of nuclear weapons. But nuclear weapons often diminish international violence, and Ukrainian nuclear weapons would have been an effective deterrent against a Russian conventional attack on nuclear blackmail. So Russia, and I think, would have invaded the Ukraine this time if Ukraine had nuclear weapons. That is more Georgia. Ukraine part of NATO. And then you had the crisis break out, 22 February 2014. And over time, it was ameliorated somewhat, pushed to the back burner, I think one could say. And then all of a sudden, it broke out again. Now, is there any hope that we can settle this crisis? I'll tell you what I think the best solution is. I think it's an obvious solution, but I think it's politically unacceptable at this point in time. The obvious solution is to turn Ukraine 
into a neutral state, more or less a buffer between Russia on one side and NATO on the other. This is effectively what you had up until February 2014. Ukraine got its independence when the Soviet Union broke apart in December 1991. And from December 1991 until roughly early 2014, there was no real problem with Ukraine. The United States and its allies were not fighting with the Russians over Ukraine. There was a verbal dispute going back to the April 2008 Bucharest summit, but there was no crisis because Ukraine from 1991 to 2008, excuse me, to 2013 was, through 2013, was effectively a neutral state. It was a that changed the situation. You understand, we now have changed the rhetoric to make the Russians the bad guys. Do you hear all this talk that... Okay, let's have a look at what uh, Peter Zion is tweeting. So... Uh, we're, we're looking at European Union and US uh, sanctions of the Russian oil industry, but uh, it's not necessary for countries to do that, right? Refiners, boats, and banks can do that. So Russia is going to have problem getting their oil out. China may buy some, but they can't buy it all. So refiners, boats, and banks have already begun to sanction the Russian oil industry. How the Turks react to the invasion shapes everything. Water shipments through the Turkish Straits are Russia's second largest oil export route. So Ukraine has asked Turkey to shut the Black Sea waterways to Russian ships. Uh, good news here is the Northern Hemisphere harvest season doesn't begin until September. Russia suspended movement of commercial vehicles in the Azov Sea until further notice. They're keeping the Black Sea open. Uh, U.S. facing worst work Worker shortage since World War II, because the baby boomers are retiring and uh, won't be fixed until the 2040s, says Zion. And uh, the Nord Stream 2's lobbyists have dumped the account after the Russian invasion. So when the lobbyists ditch you, it's over. Now let's see what former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder does. He's on the board of the Russian state gas firm Gazprom. So aside from Tucker Carlson, Gerhard Schroeder has been Putin's biggest cheerleader for weeks. We're looking at the tightest wheat market since before World War II because uh, Ukraine and Russia are the, the breadbasket of the world. Bitcoin plunges into extreme fear abyss. Geopolitical chaos and upheaval triggers flight to quality and to safety. Crypto is neither. So Zion says globalization is over. Historical patterns are now reasserting themselves. And uh, Russia is now at uh, Chernobyl. Russian airborne, airborne assault on Kiev airport. So there's no point in doing that unless Russia is aiming to capture Kiev very quickly. So Washington Post reporter says, just back from a background briefing with a senior U.S. defense official. 
More than 100 missiles launched at Ukraine last night. They came from Belarus, Russia, and the sea. Airports and other military targets were the primary emphasis. It appears Russia is moving to take control of Kiev and other cities. What we're seeing is the initial phase of a large-scale invasion. Three main axes of assault so far, from Belarus south, from Crimea north, and from the Belgrade area of Russia to around Kharkiv. We've got ground incursions from Belarus to north of Kiev and helicopter troop inserts into Kharkiv. So Russia is making a move on Kiev. What they're going to do with Kiev is hard to say. About 75 Russian fixed-wing aircraft, including bombers, were used last night. And the targets were 10 airfields. No amphibious assault has taken place. So Biden has moved two F-35 jets to Estonia, into Lithuania, and to Romania. And Apache helicopters are expected en route to Eastern Europe today. Ukraine is fighting back. So Russia appears to have every intention of decapitating the Ukrainian government, installing their own method of governance. The heaviest ground fighting in Ukraine so far has occurred around Kharkiv. And uh, we don't see any increased nuclear threats at this point. Russia is bent on creating uh, the second coming of the Soviet Union. Uh, Russia is bent on creating a greater Russia. All right. The, the Russians are the bad guys. This is a story that was invented after February 22nd, 2014. Nobody was making this argument before February 22nd, 2014. Nobody was arguing that we had to expand NATO to contain Russia before February 22nd, 2014. What happened on February 22nd, 2014 is this cockamamie strategy that we had invented to make Romania, uh, to make Ukraine a part of NATO blew up in our face. And when it blew up in our face because of our flawed policies, we were not going to admit that we had screwed up. No, we had to blame the Russians. So we said they were bent all along on dominating Eastern Europe. Then, of course, you hear the same argument made today. It's the Russians who are the bad guys. Putin is really dangerous. So in understanding how the world works, I think it's often useful to forget about good guys and bad guys, just try to understand why different people are acting as they do. And Mr. White Mayo writes, what do we think of Scott Adams' speculation that Vladimir Putin changed medication? Well, what he's doing is completely in line with Russian interests, it appears. So this, this type of action has been expected for decades. China and India have committed to continuing to buy Russian oil. Turkey buys Russian arms. They will not close the straits. Putin is making everybody confront reality. Kiev will fall within hours. And the chat says, I think Scott Adams is slowly going crazy. As a result of his streaming, he's been captured by his audience. Yes, very tempting, very easy to get captured by your audience because when you're doing this, you love it when people go, oh, yay, Luke, that's a great point. Now, that's so cutting edge. And when you live stream a lot, you really need to justify what you're doing by giving people something that they can't read in the New York Times. And so the more you live stream, the more predisposed you are to conspiracy theories because it's only with conspiracy theories that you can provide something special, that, that added value that brings people back to your streams.
We can't negotiate with him. This is the equivalent of Munich, which is another way of saying he's the second coming of Adolf Hitler and making a deal on Ukraine is like making a deal on Czechoslovakia in October 1938. This is all pure unadulterated nonsense, right? Again, there was no threat from Russia between before February 22nd, 2014. Just wasn't. We invented that story. But anyway, what the ideal situation would be, would be to create a neutral Ukraine, a Ukraine that looked a lot like the Ukraine that existed between 91 and 2014. But we can't do that. And we can't do that in large part because the Americans are unwilling to make any sorts of concessions on NATO expansion. And furthermore, to make neutrality work, uh, to make to, to create a neutral Ukraine, uh, it's very important that the Ukrainian government in Kiev reach some sort of modus vivendi with the Russian-speaking population in the Donbass. Uh, this is the famous Minsk Accords, right? It's imperative that the Kiev government implement the Minsk Accords. Okay, having a look at this John J. Mearsheimer essay from 1993, which is incredibly prescient. He notes nuclear weapons are a powerful force of peace because they are weapons of mass destruction. They create the possibility that in a war, both sides will cease to exist as functioning societies. This catastrophic threat will foreclose any Russian thoughts of aggression against Ukraine since a defeated Ukraine could well use its nuclear weapons against Russia before going under. Defeat for Ukraine at the hands of the Russians would mean loss of sovereignty. History makes clear that states will pay very high costs to maintain their sovereignty. Hence, an aggressive Russia could not dismiss the Ukrainian nuclear threat. Moreover, there is always the possibility that nuclear weapons might be used inadvertently or accidentally in the course of a conventional war, which provides further incentives for caution. And there's another reason to favor Ukrainian nuclear deterrent. It is inevitable, Right. If, if Ukraine ever comes to its senses and ever regains its sovereignty, it will want to make sure it has nuclear weapons. I mean, Ukraine has suffered greatly at the hands of outside occupiers. We had Stalin's murder of up to 12 million in the 1930s. Then the Germans killed approximately another 7 million Ukrainians during World War II. Right? So the Ukrainians have a dark history of a Russian threat, and they have the absence of outsiders willing to deter that Russian threat. So only if Ukraine had kept its nuclear weapons could it feel safe. So that the civil war, and it is effectively a civil war between the people in Donbass and the people in Western Ukraine, that has to be settled uh, before this problem can be solved. But uh, the politics inside of Ukraine at this point in time make that impossible. And again, as I said, it's impossible to envision uh, President Biden at this point uh, saying that he's going to give up uh, on NATO expansion. So the end result is this crisis is going to go on and on. Okay, back to John Mearsheimer from 1993. Many experts explain that Russia and Ukraine are on good terms and there's no serious prospect of war. Ukrainian decision to keep its nuclear weapons might anger and unnerve the Russians. 
the hands of Russian hardliners would be strengthened, which would cause Russia to pursue a more aggressive foreign policy against Ukraine, thus increasing the chances of war. And Mishimer says, my argument for Ukrainian nuclear deterrent assumes that Russian-Ukrainian relations are going to deteriorate in the future. Right? If trouble were not in the offing, Ukraine would not need a nuclear arsenal. Safest strategy is to make Ukraine a responsible nuclear power before serious trouble starts between them and not have to attempt this in the middle of a Russian-Ukrainian crisis. If Ukraine is a nuclear state, a Russian strike would be suicide. Now, what if deterrence fails and Ukraine uses nuclear weapons and Russia retaliates? Well, that would obviously be catastrophic. So nuclear weapons are very attractive as a deterrent, but they're awfully unattractive when the focus shifts to war fighting. Uh, that's the sad truth in my humble opinion. So with that, I'll stop talking, Tom, and turn it over to you. Okay. Let's have a look at uh, Peter Zion, just wrote an essay. So he talks about how Russian geography and demographic realities are dictating Russian aggression on its immediate periphery. It's not a justification of Moscow's aggression against its neighbor. International watchers should not be feigning surprise, nor should the current invasion of Ukraine He's seen as a result of madness or a personal vendetta of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russian leaders have viewed control of Ukraine, the Crimean Peninsula, and access to the Black Sea as vital to the security of Russia and Russian interests for centuries. But geography tells a story. Russia's wide-open, flat geography has provided little in the way of resistance to would-be invaders, as varied as the Mongols and Napoleon. Does Putin wish for a return of the glory of the Soviet Union? Maybe. But Putin's flexing of his military might in Chechnya and Georgia and in Ukraine would not only have been understandable to Catherine the Great and the Tsars, not to mention the Soviet premiers, but seen as necessary for Russian security. Unlike his predecessors, Vladimir Putin is working with a terminal demography. Russia's geography hasn't improved, but in the years since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, a collapsing healthcare sector, skyrocketing alcohol and substance abuse, falling birth rates, declining life expectancies, and the ravaging of disease has left Moscow to secure vast territories with a shrinking, steadily shrinking military. The Russian demography says it's now or never. Securing Ukraine is in no way the final step, but rather the necessary launching pad along with Belarus to secure the Baltic states and eastern Poland. The Russians do not see the Ukraine war as a war of aggression or Putin's egotistical quest for Soviet glory. Expect the Russians to fight as if their lives depend on the victory in their minds. That is precisely what is on the line. Let's get a little bit more here from John Mishimer. Germans, they don't want to negotiate with the French and they don't want to negotiate with the British because they understand full well that the United States runs the show. Uh, and the British will do what the United States asks them to do. So you can have perfunctory conversations with the British, but it really doesn't matter. And that's why the Russians want to talk to the United States. And the Russians don't even want to talk to NATO. They don't want to talk to Stoltenberg. They want to talk to the United States. They want to talk to Joe Biden, because they know that 
the Europeans uh, basically do what the Americans ask them to do. And if there's any country that does what the Americans ask them to do almost axiomatically, it's Britain. Uh, the Germans and the French sometimes resist, as we know from the Iraq War in 2003. But Tony Blair was a mere cheerleader for the United States in that war. So Britain does not have much of a role to play here. The United States is the key player. I, I don't say that because I'm an American. And indeed, I think American policy is usually so foolish these days that it would be better if the United States had less influence. And it would be better if the Europeans, especially the Germans and the French, stood up to the Americans. Uh, with regard to the EU, it's very important to understand that it's not just NATO expansion that is designed to make Ukraine, a Western bulwark on Russia's borders. It's NATO expansion, EU expansion, and the color revolution, the orange revolution, the movement to democratize Ukraine. Because you understand, just on the democratic point, the democratization point, the Russians fear that what we will do is then have a color revolution in Russia itself. If you go to Beijing, you go to Moscow, in both places, the leadership lives in fear that the United States will try to foster a color revolution inside China or inside Russia, right? So democratization, EU expansion, and NATO expansion are the three key elements of the strategy, although NATO expansion is the key. So the EU does matter here. Uh, there's no question about that, Tom. But, uh, but the EU is, again, not much of a player. NATO's not much of a player. It's the United States that is driving this train. Uh, and let me make one more point on that before I talk about the UN. It's very important to understand that at the April 2008 Bucharest summit, Germany and France were adamantly opposed to any movement to make Ukraine a member of NATO. Because Germany, and here we're talking about Angela Merkel, much to her credit, understood that this was asking for serious trouble. But it was the Americans who, as always, prevailed. And at the end of the Bucharest summit, a statement was issued at the Americans' insistence that said that Ukraine and Georgia would become members of NATO. So looking at the New York Times today, there's a big article on how accurate U.S. intelligence did not stop Putin, but it gave Biden new leverage. Really? really? How much leverage did this accurate intelligence have? So it was interesting the Biden administration was putting the intelligence out there saying that Russia was going to invade. But uh, I think intelligence is usually overrated. Right? What, what counts more are just facts on the ground, just pure force projection capability. And so the U.S. got the intelligence right, and where's the benefit? Like, where, where's all the leverage that uh, Joe Biden has because the U.S. intelligence community got it right? They unearthed a rival secret planning. They accurately predicted and broadcasted Russia's intentions to carry out a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. For months, the Biden administration has been sharing 
with allies and the public intelligence about President Vladimir Putin's intentions, taking away any element of surprise and stripping the Russian leader of his capacity to go to war on a false pretext. Even with the threat of substantial sanctions and allied unity, it was not enough in the end to deter Putin from carrying out the broad assault. But uh, supposedly it improved Washington's ability to bring the transatlantic alliance into a unified front against Moscow and to prepare waves of sanctions and other steps to impose a cost on Russia. After high-profile intelligence failures in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other global crises over the past several decades, the accuracy of the intelligence and analysis about Mr. Putin gave the CIA and the broader array of U.S. intelligence agencies new credibility at home and abroad, says the New York Times. So the Europeans, and here we're talking about the French and the Germans, they understood that this was a foolish thing to do, but they failed to stand up to the Americans, as so as is so often the case with the Europeans. Now, finally, you ask about the UN. The UN is effectively useless, and for one very simple reason, the Russians have a veto. Right? Anytime there's a dispute between countries that have a vote on the Security Council, and this obviously includes Russia and the United States, uh, the UN is not going to be very meaningless, very meaningful, simply because uh, the Russians would veto anything that they didn't like, and the Americans would veto anything that they didn't like. So this is, bottom line, Tom, a problem that has to be solved by the United States and the Russians. Yeah. So do you think people tend to overstate the the power of these international institutions like the UN? Not so powerful. So I looked at uh, Frank Bruni, the ridiculous columnist of the New York Times, and he's got an op-ed today. Putin is teaching us a brutal lesson about history. Aren't we supposed to be past this? Didn't history move on? Like it's 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 so shocking that uh, we've got all this brutality in the world. Well, yeah, the, the strong tend to take what they want, and the weak endure what they must, and we don't get to graduate from power politics. Right? The tragedy of great nation power politics is that conflict is inevitable. And so, you know, those people who thought, oh, we're just moving past this, that uh, history is at a, a higher level now. It's just not going to be brutal so much that the whole world is going to become liberal and democratic. Well, not so much. Yeah, let's get a little bit more from uh, John Mearsheimer. Putin had any intentions uh, over the past few days or, or weeks, I guess, including and months, including the preparations for what has unfolded over the past few days. Do you think he had any intentions of invading Ukraine or is this all just about him? And uh, Rodney Martin says, I was probably wrong. Russian troops now west of the Dnieper River. Embarrassing the West and creating a situation where the narrative can be, can be changed slightly. My view is that he did not have any intention of invading Ukraine. And he nevertheless understood that there might be circumstances under which that was necessary. For example, I believe if Ukraine was to attack the forces, the Russian-supported forces in the Donbass, he would come to their assistant and assistance, and that would in, 
that would probably involve a Russian invasion of the eastern part of the country. So I think there's certain, certain scenarios where he might have come in. But I think putting that aside, he had no intention of invading Ukraine. And there are two reasons for that. One are the costs and two the benefits. Let's just talk about the costs. First of all, if he invaded Ukraine, he'd own it. He'd be an occupier, and that would not work out very well. As he surely knows, when you occupy a country in the modern world, it invariably leads to huge resistance. So on Twitter, Mark Andreessen, the uh, tech innovator and investor, he had a long Carl Schmidt thread. So he, he writes, the specific political distinction is that between friend and enemy. So that was Carl Schmidt's insight into politics, that the duality is between friend and enemy. The distinction between friend and enemy is essentially public and not private. Individuals may have personal enemies, but personal enmity is not a political phenomenon. Politics involves groups that face off as mutual enemies. The two groups will find themselves in a situation of mutual enmity if and only if there is a possibility of war and mutual killing between them. So the distinction between friend and enemy refers to the utmost degree of intensity of an association or dissociation. The utmost degree of association is the willingness to fight and to die for and together with other members of one's group. And the ultimate degree of dissociation is the willingness to kill others for the simple reason that they are members of a hostile group. Political enmity can have many different origins. Political differs from other spheres of value in that it is not based on a substantive distinction of its own. The political distinction between friend and enemy is not reducible to any particular distinction, be it linguistic, ethnic, cultural, religious, etc., may become a marker of collective identity and difference. Any distinction that can serve as a marker of collective identity and difference will acquire political quality if it has the power, in a concrete situation, to sort people into two opposing groups that are willing, if necessary, to fight against each other. Whether a particular distinction will come to play this role is not determined by its own intrinsic significance, but by whether a group of people relies on it to define its own collective identity. Since the political is not tied to any particular substantive distinction, it is naive to assume that the political will disappear once conflicts arising from a particular distinction no longer motivate opposing groups to fight. Political identification is likely to latch on to another distinction that will inher inherit the lethal intensity of political conflicts. So you can have conflicts between two groups that are ostensibly religious or ostensibly ethnic, usually they boil down some ethnic uh, racial dimension, but they may take on the trappings of, say, religion. Wherever a distinction has political quality, it will be the decisive distinction, and the community constituted by it will be the decisive social unit. Since the political community is the social unit that can dispose of people's lives, it will be able, where it exists, to assert its superiority over all other social groups within its confines and to rule out a violent conflict among its members. John says in the chat, Ukraine as it exists will fall. Question is, will Putin install a puppet regime or outright annex Ukraine? Back to Carl Schmidt. The decision whether someone else's behavior constitutes a threat to one's own life, some concrete situation, and the decision whether it is necessary to use reactive or even preemptive violence to remove or to escape that threat cannot be delegated to a third person. Uh, there's no escaping the reality of the friend-enemy distinction and that we live in a world where groups have different interests 
where resources are limited and conflict is inevitable. A group that perceives its own existence to be threatened by some other group finds itself in an analogous position. The possibility of third-party mediation is therefore ruled out in a truly political conflict. Political community exists then wherever a group of people are willing to engage in political life by distinguishing themselves from outsiders through the drawing of a friend-enemy distinction. Drawing of a friend-enemy distinction, therefore, is never a mere reaction to a threat to a form of existence that is already given. Rather, it actively constitutes the political identity or existence of the people and determines who belongs to the people. The friend-enemy is foundational to understanding yourself. You don't understand yourself until you know who the enemy is. So for a Christian, to some degree, the Jew and the Muslim will be the enemy. Now, that doesn't have to be of great importance. It can just be motoring along rather unobtrusively and silently in the background. But there are inherent tensions between Jews, Christians, and Muslims. So according to Hegel, one only knows oneself through the other. The other is almost always going to be an enemy as the other stands apart from you and your community. Right, so all the world hates strangers. Right, virtually nobody cares about outgroups. This is a consequence of pluralism. If we're not all the same, then there must be difference and differentiation. The very beginning of human existence, there has always been something that threatened existence. That was the enemy. Today, the enemy is principally the force that threatens what humans have achieved. The enemy, which leads to conflict, is essential to the nature of the world and meaning in life. Without the enemy, life would be meaningless and shallow. Now, that doesn't mean your hatred of the enemy needs to be dialed up to 10 out of 10 on a daily basis. They're probably motoring along at a 2 when there's uh, no, no need for intense conflict. Now, having a low-level understanding of who your enemy is uh, probably helps your own identity and your own bonds with your own tribe. And at a, an intensity of 2, it's not likely to do damage to your life. To have no power to decide who to include as a member of the body and who to exclude as a member of the body is not to be political. Since man is political, this is part of his human nature. Those who attempt to eliminate conflict and transform enemies into rational actors whom one can persuade to not have qualms with a nihilist out to destroy man's political nature. Even if everyone managed to become friends, we would make someone an enemy just because that is human nature and that is what politics is about. To, to think that we don't have enemies is a flawed view of human nature. Man lusts for domination. The strong take what they want, the weak endure what they must. Man lusts for power. Man lusts for control. So that comes from the Stanford University entry, encyclopedia entry on Carl Schmidt. And highly applicable to this conflict. And all sorts of trouble. Uh, Putin is surely smart enough to know that invading Ukraine and owning it would be a prescription for huge trouble. Secondly, if he invades Ukraine, we have made it clear in the West that we will go to great lengths to cripple the Russian economy. So there will be significant economic costs in addition to the costs of running an occupation in a huge country filled with people who don't want you there. So those are the costs. Now, what about the benefits of not invading? 
Putin is winning. I mean, first of all, he's got our attention, right? We're now scrambling to negotiate with him, talk to him, to ameliorate this crisis. Right. So this is John Mearsheimer, and I believe he's speaking on February 21. At least that's the that's the date that uh, the video was uploaded. So a little out of touch. Furthermore, we in the West now understand. We understand that NATO expansion into Ukraine is viewed by the Russians as an existential threat. So Ukraine is never going to become part of NATO. That's just not going to happen. We now know that. Nobody will say that. And Biden is in no position to back off. But Putin has made it clear where the Russians stand on this. Everybody knows there is a red line in the sand. Okay, let's have a look at uh, Peter Zion. Hello, everyone. Peter Zion here. Uh, it's February 23rd. It's the first day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I thought it would be useful to talk about the role that Ukraine and Russia play in the global economy so you have an idea of what's coming. We're likely to see large portions of their contributions, melon scooped in the days and weeks ahead, just taken out completely. Uh, so whether it is countries putting sanctions on the Russians themselves, folks putting sanctions on Russian-occupied Ukrainian products, or as a part of the war, these productions being disrupted and no longer contributing to the global whole. One way or another, a lot of this stuff is simply going to fall out of the system and is not going to come back uh, in any sort of rapid speed, if ever. Uh, we are entering a, de a deglobalized world, so it's likely that anything goes offline is not going to be coming back uh, at all. So first and obviously most important is natural gas. Russia is the world's largest exporter of natural gas and the vast majority, well over 80% of what it produces is sent west to the European Union. The Europeans are debating among themselves how they can deal with this in this situation because they can't just cut cold turkey. There's no replacement anywhere in the world. Uh, one odd bright spot is that Ukraine imports all of its natural gas from Russia. So the Russians, while they're invading Ukraine, are unlikely to continue supplying the country that, uh, you know, uh, that means that the only way that the Russians can get their natural gas to Europe is through circuitous routes, uh, one going north through the Baltic Stream pipeline, uh, the North Stream pipeline, as it's known, and another one going south into Turkey, uh, which then has a spur that goes up to Europe. So one way or another, the Europeans are uh, in a bit of trouble here. <clears throat> now, things that are made from natural gas, the Russians are also a major exporter of, specifically products like ammonia, which are used to make nitrogen-based fertilizer. Uh, the Russians are also the world's largest exporter of nitrogen-based fertilizer. Uh, they're also the largest exporter of potash-based fertilizer. So we are seeing two of the three streams of fertilizer production in the world <clears throat> possibly going offline in the not too distant future. We already have fertilizer prices that were six and seven times what they were just a year ago globally. We were already looking down the moth of potential global famine. Now it's pretty much guaranteed. A third, the Russians are major producers and exporters of iron ore, which also means that they're the world's largest exporter of semi-finished iron and low quality steel. Hard to have a modern world without that. Fourth, they're also the world's largest exporter of iron, nickel ore and finished nickel, which is the primary component in addition to iron ore in order to make stainless steel, which is what we use in almost everything. And at the bottom of the top list is wheat. The Russian space uh, is an less than fully reliable 
uh, wheat producer because the climate is very cold. The rain comes or it doesn't. It's in a step. It's very erratic. But as a rule, Russia has been one of the top, world's top three grain exporters going back a century. Uh, and if they were suddenly removed from the system, that could have massive outcomes. Most of the wheat that the Russians export goes to the Middle East. And the last time there were major disruptions coming out of the Russian space, we had the Arab Spring because we had a sudden tripling of wheat prices. What we're looking at now would be far more holistic because we're including Ukraine in this now, which is also one of the world's top 10 producers. And to lose them both at the same time would suggest that wheat prices on a global basis are going to at least triple. Wheat has gone from being decidedly unsexy to perhaps being the most exciting commodity out there. Next, uh, where Russia is only second most important, crude oil. Now, the Europeans obviously take the most, but uh, there are a number of maritime options that the Russians have for exporting crude, meaning that it goes a little bit further into more customers. Obviously, the East Asians play a major role. There is a pipeline that terminates near Vladivostok on the Pacific, but the United States plays here too. Uh, we import about a half a million barrels a day of Russia's Earl's, Ural's crude blend uh, to replace the crude we used to get from Venezuela. Uh, American refiners through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s steadily improved the quality of the refineries so that they could tap cheap sources of low quality crude, uh, Venezuela primarily. When Venezuela vanished from the mix, they didn't want to dumb down the refineries to use local produced shell crude, which sells on the international market at a premium. They wanted to find another source of cheap crude, so they went with the Russians. So if the Biden administration is looking for a quick and easy way to hit the Russians in the pocketbook, banning the import of Russian crude is a good way. Okay, looking at uh, Twitter, Colin Liddell says, what the great gay Satan secretly craves more than anything else is a reason not to be gay or even satanic. Now Putin has provided that. Putting Putin in his place will be good for the West. And uh, Jenna Goldberg is not impressed by American nationalists who are not eager to go to war with Putin. Jenna Goldberg tweets, amazing how so many of the self-proclaimed American nationalists talk such a big game about the importance of nationalism the morality of nationalism, the necessity of nationalism, just don't care very much when an imperial power tries to erase a nation. The whole thing about nationalism is it's not an abstract ideological commitment to fair play and self-determination. It means that you strongly identify with your people and you're primarily concerned with the well-being of your people. It's not an abstract philosophical commitment. It's a visceral commitment. Way to do it. The refiners won't be thrilled, but there is a war on. Uh, well, that crude means the Russians are also the world's largest exporter of refined product, gasoline, especially diesel, uh, naphtha, a lot of the things that the modern world used to make it go, with again the Europeans being the single largest consumers and the East Asians in second place. Next up, platinum group metals, whether it's cerium or rhodium or platinum itself. Uh, platinum group metals are used in a lot of high-end electronics, which you are probably using the device that uses them right now. Uh, They're also used in catalytic converters. Uh, there are other sources, South Africa, for example, but based on the specific material, the Russians are either the, the single largest supplier, the second largest supplier, or the third largest supplier. So removing them from the market period is going to have a lot of pain. They're also the world's second largest exporter of sawn wood, or if you're British, timber. Now, most of that goes to East Asia, with the Japanese being particularly ravenous buyers because the Japanese like wooden sidewalk. And uh, John Berkshire has got an excellent uh, point in the chat. The Whig Nats hate Peter Zion because he's so optimistic about America's future. Refined copper is next up. Again, if you use an electronic device, it's going to affect you. And then finally, seed oils. And, you know, we think of that as like, oh, come on, olive oil, how excited to be. Well, sunflower and safflower oil for the former Soviet space kind of fill the role of canola oil and olive oil in much of the rest of the world. 
So you're talking about a primary food input that is necessary to make things like bread. The, the list where Russia is the third largest exporter is pretty short. It's just one thing, coal. It goes everywhere. And if we're moving into a world where Russian oil and Russian natural gas is constrained, you know, coal is one of the few backup power systems that's possible. Now, I'm sure that some people are going to say, well, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity for all of us and for the Europeans in particular to double, triple and quadruple down on green energy tech. The problem is, is that green energy tech can't solve the problems where it's going to be. Whether it's Northern Europe, Japan or China, these are countries with some of the lowest solar radiation and the lowest wind quotients in the world. So you would have to build you know, 10 and 15 times as much capacity of solar and wind capacity to replace the natural gas that's going offline. Nuclear might work. And in the case of the Germans, uh, they have a bunch of nuclear power plants that they recently took offline. They could now turn them back on. They, they probably will have to. Uh, but coal is how you square that circle. And now one of the world's largest suppliers of coal is gone as well. Okay, that's going to do it for now. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.